0: Our Father, there was a lot of shouting going on yesterday. People shouted when someone kicked a long field goal. And they shouted when an unexpected touchdown put their team on top to lead to an upset. Lots and lots of shouting going on around the country. We are a people who find our delight in shouting salvation full and free. That there is not one addition that need be made to it. That salvation is a gift of God and it is received via a hand of faith. That we are a people who are saved not based on any merit of our own. There is nothing that we can do that is good enough to please you. Our works, your word says, are as filthy rags before you. So we don't like to concentrate on that. But, oh, God, those of us who have have tasted grace, we love to shout salvation, full and free. A gospel that says that Jesus saves, and he saves to the uttermost. Now, Father, accept our worship, be with us in this ceremony today. We would ask you if you would see fit to hold back the reins, but, Father, our land is so parched, we will thank you even if it does rain. But, Father, might our worship be sweet? Might the memory be sweet? Might the offering be sacrificial? As we attempt as a people to express once again that our highest loyalty in life is Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you. To the book of Judges, which is found um, tucked in the back of the Old Testament. It's right after Joshua. So if you can find Joshua, you can find Judges. While you're finding Judges, and we'll begin reading at the 16th verse, um, let me remind you of something that I didn't earlier. After this service is over, which hopefully will be right at 10, all of you who have any kind of little one in any kind of nursery, Sunday school class, any kind that is not with you, you must go get them. Um, The people who are in the nurseries, they want to be a part of the groundbreaking too. And so um, we're going to give you some minutes to go get your children. uh, And we won't start out there for 10, 15 minutes. But you must go get your children. Please don't be the parent that forces someone back there to miss this because you neglected to get your child. Please go get them right after we're finished. I'll try to remind you again of that as we close. Follow now as I read from Judges chapter 1, beginning at verse 16. <clears throat> Now the children of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up from the city of Palms with the children of Judah into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the south near Arad. And they went and dwelt among the people. And Judah went with his brother Simeon, and they attacked the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and utterly destroyed it. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Also, Judah took Gaza with its territory, Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. So the Lord was with Judah, and they drove out the mountaineers, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because they had chariots of iron. And they gave Hebron to Caleb, as Moses had said. Then he expelled from there the three sons of Anak, But the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who inhabited Jerusalem. So the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. And the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. So the house of Joseph sent men to spy out Bethel. The name of the city was formerly Luz. And when the spies saw a man coming out of the city, they said to him, Please show us the entrance to the city, and we will show you mercy. So he showed them the entrance to the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of Hittites, built a city, and called its name Luz, which is its name to this day. The grass withers, and the flower indeed fades. But the word of our God, it is a book that endures forever. A couple of three years ago, I forget exactly the year, I want to say it was two years ago, a group of us uh, from Gracie Band went off to the Holy Land, made a trip to Israel, and and all in all, it was just a wonderful, wonderful trip. Um, But about three months prior to my going, or our going to Israel, my daughter Gracie, uh, my oldest daughter, Gracie also took a trip to Israel, and she went in August. Well, suffice it to say that um, she has no more desire to ever visit the Holy Land again. She said at times, um, on one occasion or several maybe, but uh, the thermometer made it up to 117 degrees. And she would call us... from the little brat, she would call us from the inside of the bus, you know, the air-conditioned bus, and she would say, I'm not getting off this bus because all they're looking at is rocks and dirt. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, here she is, uh, 8,000 miles away from home in the Holy Land, and she ain't getting off the bus because it's dirt and rocks. Anyway, we went in November. It was It was far cooler than that. But now my point in that little story is simply this: you know, as I read this stuff, uh, we've we've covered a little bit of chapter one, and we've talked about uh, we've talked about cities uh, by the name of uh, Kirjath Sepher, and then there's uh, there's Arad, and then there's Zephath, and then we talked about some king by the name of Bezek who got his uh, toes and thumbs cut off, and. And then we talked about a a daughter who wanted some springs from her daddy to feed her livestock. And, you know, I I wonder if all of that is of much interest to you. I don't care about Arad and Bethel and all those places and Ebron and Bezek's big toes. But there is a point in this story, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Actually, there's several points, and I'm going to kind of allude to one, and then I'm going to make another but um, if you'll notice in the text, in chapter 1, I want to show you something that's repeated three times. Look at verse 4. Then Judah went up, and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the parasites into their hands. Uh, then will look at verse 19. So the Lord was with Judah. And then if you look at a, one more place, one, uh, verse 22, and the Lord... Was with them. Now, gang, um, I, I think you know that any time you find something repeated three times in a span of 18 verses, you ought to take note. There's an emphasis being made. There's something that's being said that that uh, that the Bible writer wants you to know, or at least take note of. Uh, if, if the Bible is going to emphasize something, it's going to do so by repetition. And there is repetition here, ladies and gentlemen. Three times we are told that God was involved in this deliverance process. Uh, of the Israelites into the hands of their enemies. Normally, ladies and gentlemen, normally when God is trying to teach us something about himself, when God is trying to show us something about his person, his character, his nature, his ways, he normally does it within the context of some kind of example. Uh, It may be, you know, uh, uh, three guys in a lion's den, or it may be... uh, Adonai, Bezak that getting his big toes cut off? But, but normally, what God does, if He is seeking to, to tell you something about Himself, He does it by giving us some kind of episode that will, some kind of vivid picture of something that went on that will hopefully serve as kind of a, um, a coat hook on the walls of our minds so that we can hang that thing on there, that we can remember something about the God who did that thing that we remember very well. And so in the midst of the episode, uh, we remember the episode fairly well, but the goal of getting the episode down is so that we will not forget something about the nature of God the character of God, the ways of God, that we will learn that lesson and to the heck with uh, Bezek's toes. It's not about his toes. It's about God. It's about God and something that he wants his people to know. So here's hoping that Bezek's big toes um, will forever remind you It'll always remind you of... And very frankly, maybe even when you take off your shoes tonight and you look at your ugly big toe, maybe it'll remind you of the kind of success that God's people have when God accompanies them. When God's in the midst of the thing, you you can count on it going well. Um... There is no enemy that is too large when God's in the fight. Now, that's what all this business is about, ladies and gentlemen. Not so that you can have a little geography lesson for the next time that you visit Israel so that you'll know where Arad is. That ain't the issue. The issue is you learning something about who God is and what he's done. Now, I have to tell you that that's pretty much the extent of the good news. From here, we kind of go downhill. Um, I, I want to show you something in the text, because tucked in this text, um, in this running historical narrative, uh, is what Brian Chappell would call the FCF. Now, you all know what the FCF is, don't you? Brian Chappell wrote a book on expository preaching, and. And he makes some wonderful points in the book, and I profited greatly by reading it. I'm not quite through with it, but one of the points that he makes is that in every text there is an FCF. So when you read your Bibles, look for your FCF. Okay, so let's move on with that. Um, The FCF means the fallen condition focus. That in every text there is a fallen condition condition, focus. There is something in the text that is supposed to remind us of our fallenness. Did you see it? Did you see it in this text when I read it? Because it's in there. Um, And um, I'm going to spend the rest of my time trying to help us draw a bead on how you and I might not repeat the, the same kind of failure that we see these guys making. Now, to, to, to get a look at it, I want you to keep your finger right there Judges 1, and I want you to turn back with me a couple of books to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 20, and I want you to... I'm, I'm going to read just four verses to you. They're not long, just Deuteronomy 20, beginning at verse 1 and I am of the age that I can't see this without my glasses. It's a sad admission, but it is true. Follow as I read those four verses, Deuteronomy 20, and see if they don't ring some kind of bell. (laughs) Uh, When you go out to battle against your enemies and and see horses and chariots, and people more numerous than you, run for the hills. (laughs) Your Bible doesn't say that, does it? It says, do not be afraid of them for the Lord your God is with you who brought you up from the land of Egypt, so it shall be when you are on the verge of battle, that the priest shall approach this, uh, shall approach and speak to the people, and he shall say to them, Hear, O Israel! Today you are on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart faint. Do not be afraid, and do not tremble or be terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is He who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. Now, did you notice any similarities about what is said here and our text for this morning? Well, if you were half asleep or fully asleep, let, let me point out a couple of the similarities. First of all, enemies. When you go out to battle enemies, that's a very very clear similarity uh, between these two passages. Enemies over here in Judges 1 and enemies over here in Deuteronomy, 12, Deuteronomy 20. Now, there's another st- uh, similarity. Uh, when you go out to do that, uh, the Lord your God is with you. That's another similarity that I tried to point out a moment ago, saying that that was repeated three times in our text. And then the final, sim- not the final, but the, the third similarity that I want to point out is this one. Chariots. <laughs> Chariots. When you see those armies out there, and they got more people than you got, and not only do they have more people than you got, but they got chariots. Now then, when that happens, what is supposed to be the people of God's response? Do not be afraid of them. That's what it says right here in Deuteronomy 20 verse 1 if you're about to enter a battle and they got bigger odds and I mean you know odds are stacked against you and they got those blasted old chariots don't be afraid. Now go back to our text here's the uh, here's the battle going on lots and lots of enemies. And the Lord is with them. <laughs> Those are all similarities. <laughs> but look at verse 19 with me. So the Lord was with Judah, and they drove out the mountaineers, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because they had chariots of iron. <laughs> Now, ladies and gentlemen, that's what I would call the FCF, the Fallen condition Focus. They felt, I mean, Israel felt quite confident that they were able to handle those guys in the hills, the mountaineers they're called. But not those guys down in the, in, in the flatlands with those fierce war machines known as chariots. You know, perhaps some of you, the only chariot you ever seen was on a Ben Hur movie, but they weren't all exactly like that. Some of them had these uh, on the axles of each wheel. They had these things that were all pointy and iron and and uh, you know and and you know, when they rolled and they grabbed hold of a piece of flesh, it turned it into hamburger meat. And then these two horses were hooked together by, by a pole, and s- locked onto those poles were these two, s- or maybe more, spears or lances. And boy, you got hit with one of those, and you were instantly skewered. So, uh, yeah, we'll we'll uh, we'll get rid of those mountaineers. Those guys are. <laughs> we got them. But those chariots. Can't handle little boys. Run for the hills. Now, now, let me let me try to add up for you what's happened here. We've got a um, we've got a statement here that says, "God is with you." It says it three times. And then, it's got this admonition over here in Deuteronomy that if God is with you, you don't need to be afraid. But then what do we get in our text? A bunch of people who are afraid. That wasn't supposed to be there. That's not supposed to be the right response. And and may I hasten to point out, ladies and gentlemen, some of God's best people were were overtaken with fears. It, can, I, can I read you just a couple of these? Uh, this is David in, in Psalm 31, verse 13, and he says, Fear is on every side. In Psalm 34, uh, 34, 4, he says, I sought the Lord, and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. And then Psalm 94, listen to this. If I say my foot slips, your mercy, O Lord, will hold me up in the multitude of my anxieties within me. Your comforts delight me. And and I'm glad he was able to find comfort, but I'm simply saying that there was one of God's best and, and he dealt with fear a lot. But my point, ladies and gentlemen, just because we find it in the people of God, does not make it right that it's in the people of God? My goal this morning is, uh, is simply to help you discover or help us discover the why. Why is it in the midst of all the promises that God makes us about all kinds of things, why is it that we still find ourselves terrified? unwilling to obey because the odds those iron chariots they're just too blasted scary for somebody like me I have three suggestions and and I, and I hope they'll be helpful to you but three um, three answers to why is it that that when God has made us these promises and he's going to be with us and he tells us not to fear that we still do uh, let me make three suggestions number one what you have in judges one is a is a group of people who do indeed trust God they do up to a certain point <laughs> uh, uh, these are God's people and when it comes to mountaineers they feel fine um, it's at, up to a certain point, their faith carries them, and they experience some great victory. A victory that I might point out was brought on by God's being with them, yes. But, but when we say that faith simply takes us to a certain point, what we had implied is that God can help us up to a certain point. And that's bad enough. <laughs> But the implication goes further, I think, because the further implication is that up to a certain point, I really don't even need you. When it comes to fighting mountaineers, I can handle it. But um, you know those down there, I, I, I you know I know that you've made your promises, but I you know I, I can't handle those. Um, and, and I think that sometimes our lack of faith conceals a measure of self-trust. It's, it's just pure, unmixed unbelief on our parts. I'll read you a quote from one of my heroes. His name is John Calvin. And he says that believers are constantly beset by doubts, disquietude, spiritual difficulty, and turmoil. It never goes so well with us, he says, that we are wholly cured of the disease of unbelief and entirely filled and possessed by faith. There is is an unbeliever within the breast of every Christian In the believing mind, says Calvin, certainty is mixed with doubt. Now, gang, I I, I couldn't agree more with Calvin's assessment because I, I don't know about the rest of you, but I tend to be brutally honest with myself and brutally hard on myself. But I don't know whether that's true of you, but it's true of me. Now, let me make a point of application at this point. (laughs) If there is unbelief mixed in all of our belief, then I would say, please, please don't ever think that it is your faith that saves you. Because you know what? Even your faith isn't good enough. Even your faith is flawed. Even your faith is full of imperfection. And ladies and gentlemen, if God asks you to be saved by faith, that is, that you are going to have to exercise some kind of perfection and faith so that he will redeem you, you're all going to be lost and so is your preacher. Gang, it is not our faith that saves us. The basis on which God saves any of us is the finished and accomplished work of Jesus Christ for us. I'm a saved man because of what Jesus has done for me, not because of my faith. And very frankly, ladies and gentlemen, if you came in here saying this morning that I'm going to heaven because I believe, then I want you to know that your Savior is your belief. It's called fetism, faith in faith. And I say to you, this text points out that even in the best of us, there is an imperfection in our faith. It goes up to a certain point, but it won't take us any further, or it doesn't seem to take us any further. And I'm not saying that's good, and I certainly want to mention that faith can grow. But faith, even that which we hold on to so dear, gang, we, we get up here and we sing these songs, and... And um, we are on the Lord's side. I would dare say that every one of the men who are up there, they believe that. But that faith is imperfect. So is yours. So ladies and gentlemen, don't be clamoring about your faith in God because um, the devil's got that. What you need to clamor about is the finished work of Jesus, and that you've got a hold of that cross with both arms, and you ain't letting go. Because very honestly, our faith is imperfect. It's The second observation that I think is true of us, and that is that we we believe one promise of God and, and don't believe the others. That is, we only believe half the promises. Uh, mountain men? Yeah, I can take those. Charioteers? Mm-mm. Can't do that. Um, teach a Sunday school class? Sure, I can do that. Give money away? Can't do that. Um, lay sod? Oh, I can do that. But share Christ with someone? Nope, can't do that. Some promises are just easier for us to believe than our others. And um, depending on how we define our strengths, those are the promises that we find easy to believe. You know what, ladies and gentlemen? I am um, loud and growing less and less obnoxious. But there's still a lot of that there, too. Did I ever tell you the story about... When I was on the University of Tennessee, uh, going to an exam. Did I tell you that story? I'll tell it again. I'm, I'm on the bus. The University of Tennessee is so large that we have to have buses that pick us up, take us to class. You know, so it was during exams, I would stayed up all night and you know studied and we got ready for the big test. And and uh, you know, it's I had that what you call that eggshell knowledge. You know, you get it, you dump it on the table on, on the test, and then it crashes and you don't have any more of it uh, ever again. So anyway, I, I I was riding back and I was just hyped. I am mellowing. I'm telling you, I am. I promise you. I promise you. I, I'm even eating, eating slower. But, uh, but I mean, I was 20 years old at the time, and at the peak of my obnoxiousness. Anyway, so I was in a fraternity. I was in I was in SAE, as Jack pointed out yesterday, and and um, I didn't have a pin on. I didn't have an SAE pin on. I, you know, I didn't. But anyway, so I was riding in the bus, and you know, I was just going. You know, and this girl was sitting in front of me, and she turned around, kind of cute little thing, and said. Uh, uh, are you an SAE? And I said, well, yes, I am. How did you know? And she said, well, because you're loud and obnoxious. <laughs> that was awful. Anyway, but I'm, I'm, I'm getting less obnoxious, but not much less loud. But here's my point. Boldness comes easy for me. That's just easy. Some of you are kind of withdrawn. Some of you are kind of introverted, not real people persons, wonderful people, but just not really, you know, go-getters. Boldness for you becomes very, very difficult. All I'm trying to illustrate, ladies and gentlemen, is depending on how we define our strengths, That's the promises we find easier to believe. Not because I'm a great lion of the faith. No. I just find those easier to believe than the others about humility. We believe half the promises. But for all of us, have you heard these words? They come from Jesus in John 15. He says, Without me, you can do not very much. Without me, you can do nothing. And you know what nothing is, don't you? it's a zero with the edges erased. Without me, we can do nothing. Let's go out and dig some dirt. What do you say? I just said, let's go build a building. What do you think? We got the money? Yeah, we got the money. Without him, we can do nothing. I read a story that I thought was... A, Kind of cute, maybe, maybe not so cute. But it was about a, uh, a truck driver who was driving on this narrow mountain road, and you know, he was it was late at night, and, and uh, there was a cliff that dropped precipitously off to his uh, his right, nearly 1,500 feet down to the bottom of a canyon, and you know, you, you don't want to roll off that thing, and because you you would hurt. Um, but um, and uh, at one particular curve, the the truck was rounding the curve. And he uh, lost control of this truck, and the, the, uh, the truck went off the side of the road and tumbled all the way down to the bottom of this ravine, and he uh, was thrown out of the, of the driver's side window, and while the truck was rolling down and bursting into flames, he grabbed hold of a bush, kind of like a Beetle Bailey uh, uh, scene. You know. He's holding on to this bush on the side of a mountain, and um, he's crying out me can someone help me and uh, about that time um, he heard this voice and um, it was the voice of God who said yes my son I am here I can help you just let go of the branch and my hands will be right underneath you And there was a little silence. The truck driver said, is there anybody else out there? (laughs) (laughs) We believe half of them, not just all of them. Real quickly, my last point. This is just a suggestion, ladies and gentlemen, as to why unbelief exists in us. Um, I want to read you a quote this is a very old book. This, is, this hopefully will impress you greatly. This is, um, this is written by a man by the name of Josephus. Heard that name? Among Judaism, he is the most well-respected historian ever. Uh, every Jew you know will know the name Ju- Josephus, and uh, this is the history of the Jews. It's, in fact, the book is... I don't have the little thing because it brought it off. Uh, It's called The Antiquities of the Jews. That's what this book is called. Now listen to what uh, Josephus, a Jew, writes about this period. Just a couple of sentences. After this, the Israelites grew effeminate as to fighting any more against their enemies, but applied themselves to the cultivation of the land, which producing them great plenty and riches they neglected the regular disposition of their settlement, and indulged, indulged themselves in luxury and pleasures. You see what Josephus said. He said, "Well, you know, those people—they fought a few, and, and then they got kind of effeminate about fighting battles, and so they started cultivating the land, so that and, and prospered really greatly, and and, and then they just kind of settled into some, uh, you know, to, to some luxuries." Another one of my heroes is a guy by the name of Francis Schaefer. He's with the Lord now and, and he wrote several books, and one of the ones that he wrote is entitled How Shall We Now How Shall We Then Live? And in that book he makes a he makes an observation. The observation is about the 60s. Now, not many of you, some of us were raised in the sixties. You remember the sixties? Kent State. You remember the weathermen the Chicago said? Remember when the University of Wisconsin lab was blown up? Patty Hearst? Uh, all those, th- that era where the whole country was about to explode in some kind of riot. And then those days kind of disappeared silently with a kind of a whimper. And Francis Schaefer said this, I wish we were back in the 60s because back in the 60s at least people were looking for the truth. They were, they were trying to find things that would help them give substance to their life, but no more. Because the only things they're interested in now are personal peace and affluence. Just like Josephus said. That's all they're interested in is personal peace. You know what that is? Leave me alone. I don't care what you do. I don't care whether there's partial birth of no. Abortions, you know, I don't care whether there's gays in the military. As long as it doesn't bother me, the only thing I want is personal peace. And affluence, an ever-increasing prosperity, a life that is made up of things and things and more things, a a, a success that is more and more defined and judged by an ever-higher standard of material abundance. You know, that's why, ladies and gentlemen, we don't believe God, because we've grown effeminate. All we want now is personal peace and affluence. What happened to the days when we longed for truth? What happened to the days when we were burdened for men who would die and go to a Christless grave? What happened? I'll tell you what happened. Our salaries got too big. And what I'm suggesting, ladies and gentlemen, in the midst of all of God's promises, all of His demands of us, some of those things go unheeded and unbelieved because we're busy. We're busy pursuing personal peace and affluence. Gang, no part of us is untouched by sin. There's there's no action of ours that is as good as it should be. Nothing we do could ever earn God's favor. Nothing we've ever done is meritorious in His sight. And so we have learned to glory, to glory in a gospel of grace that says, that the righteousness of God is revealed apart from the law in the work of Jesus Christ. And some of you are out there as unbelievers and you hear that stuff and you think, you know, I'd I'd really like to have that. I I really do. But, you know, there's there's just something in my life that I'm not willing to give up. Well, I'm afraid that's a chariot of iron for you, my friend. And it's got to go that which you won't kill will kill you. And it's not that it's got to be eliminated in an instant, but there has to be a commitment on your part that that is going to be sacrificed at the cross of Jesus Christ. It's going because I want Christ more than I want my next breath. Folks, um, the gospel offers us forgiveness for our divided hearts. All those iron chariots, those big, bad, ugly, destructive iron chariots, were offered forgiveness by a God of unmeasurable grace. Oh, how our hearts should leap at this gospel that offers forgiveness to people who believe, but only a little bit. Our Father, I do pray that you will uh, honor our efforts to grow in faith. We are a people who long to be more of what you've asked us to be. But our Savior rebuked little faith, but he never rejected it. And we are people of the little faith. So, Father grow us up, might we all come to the recognition that even at our best, we are still corrupt. And our only hope is Jesus and all that He has done for us. We pray, of course, in His name.